I've been a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ since I was 12 years old. But I've been in church my entire life. Many of you have heard me tell a story that my mother was a church pianist. And I was in church from the time uh, I was in her womb at the church piano. She was a very young church pianist, but she played very well. And maybe that's one of the reasons I have virtually the entire hymnal memorized, the old songs of the faith, because I've been around them uh, since before my conscious understanding. And if there's one thing I've noticed across the years about church, it's that worship in the American church is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, it's really easy for the people of God to sometimes pretend to be farther along than they actually are in their relationship with it. In fact, it's easy to pretend to be somebody that you're not. It's easy to pretend to experience something in worship that you generally, uh, genuinely have not experienced. I know many families, in fact, I've been there. I remember when my kids were very small. Many families are on the precipice of World War III every Sunday morning. Y'all have been there. I hear the murmurs and the chuckles all the way around the room this morning. There's yelling sometimes, sharp words, television is blaring. On the way to church, there's confusion about whether anybody remembered to bring the offering or not. More people is not today give electronically, and so that's not as big of an issue as it used to be. And so everybody's at each other's throats on the way to church. And then there is this miraculous biblical transformation that takes place when the doors open out on the church parking lot. Everybody gets out and they become the sweetest thing that God ever made on planet earth. I mean, everything's lovely. The words become gracious. The language is biblical. They take their places in their normal and customary Baptist seats on Sunday mornings, raise their hands. I'm so grateful that he saved me and that he's mine. Yes, he's mine. And they raise their hands and they sing, it is well with my soul. Sometimes it's anything but that. Solomon reminds us of that, of the importance of approaching worship with an incredible sobriety and an incredible seriousness. That doesn't have to mean you have to be dour and sour. You can be lively and enthusiastic and still be serious and sober at the same time. And Solomon would remind us that nowhere is that more important for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ than in his or her worship of the living God. We're going to read the <clears throat> first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And one of the takeaways of this passage is the very important reminder that just because you assemble with other believers in a worship service does not mean that you actually worship God. You can be here for an hour and 15 minutes and never actually engage with the sovereign living Lord of heaven and earth. Notice what Solomon says in chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. Guard your steps when you come into the house of God to draw near to listen 
is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing, would you say it out loud, they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Father, we come into your presence this morning and Lord, our hearts want to be uh, humbled and even broken before the majesty of your presence today. I pray that you'll give each and every person in this room or even those watching remotely an incredible vision of Jesus Christ. High and lifted up, may we see his holiness and may we be changed because of it. We glory in your name today. Pray that your spirit would guide us well. Teach us now from your word that we might live differently in a way that makes a difference for the kingdom. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Well, you can tell this is a very important passage. Solomon's being very serious with those that are listening to the sound of his written voice. And it's important not only for what it teaches us about our own worship, I think it's important for the things that it reveals to us about Solomon as well. I mean, Solomon has had some difficult things to say in the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes. Uh, he's had challenging things to say. Many people <clears throat> would say that Solomon has even been negative more often than not. But then we read a passage like this, and you know one of the things it reminds me? Solomon is not an atheist. Somebody say amen. In fact, it's very clear that Solomon's not even an agnostic here. He's not become a thoroughgoing religious cynic, if we could say it that way, because he's got many questions about God and he has many questions about the mysteries of life. There is no doubt when you read this passage that our friend King Solomon is in fact a man of great faith. This is a man that knows God. This is a man who's very serious about how he approaches God and he wants his listeners to be serious about how they approach God just as much as he is. Basically, Solomon communicates two very important things about worship for the people of God. The first is simply this, Solomon would remind us when it comes to worship, guard your steps as you prepare for it. Guard your steps as you prepare for worship. I'm just taking that first point right off the first statement out of Solomon's mouth here in verse one. It's the primary principle in the passage. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now let me just say, I think that's a hidden gem of a scripture. 
It's not on anybody's top 10 or 20 most memorized verses in the Bible, but that's one of the most important imperatives that you're going to find because what's more important than the worship of the living God? We've identified it here at Hillcrest as our most significant core value. We want to help people in becoming like Christ, people who, and what's the first thing we say? People who what? Worship God. That's right. And Solomon says, when it comes to the worship of God, you need to take it very seriously. Guard your steps. People come to a gathered worship service like this for all kinds of reasons. Some, become, some come because they're very eager to have an encounter with God. Some come because they're eager to have an encounter with their friends or because they're eager to have an encounter with other people. Some come because it's the southern culturally acceptable thing to do. This is what my mom and daddy taught me to do. It's what grandmom and granddaddy taught us to do. It's what our whole family has done for generations where we are. We go to church on Sunday mornings. I was a friend to a young couple back when we ministered in the wonderful state of Missouri several years ago. Uh, <clears throat> the wife of the couple would come to church. She was very faithful in church. She was a believer. But her husband would never come with her. And she told me one time that uh, there was a time that he <clears throat> had been uh, in church as a child. This guy was a very smart guy, very intelligent guy, very observant guy. So he watched people. He observed people in church and he observed people in the community outside of church. And there was a great disconnect that he over time began to notice that affected him in terms of his own <clears throat> relationship with the Lord. Because she told me that he'd come to the position in his life where he was convinced that for most people, church was fundamentally not a place of worship, but a place of social connection. It's a place where people got together in order to fundamentally get together. And he'd come to believe that people associated with one another because they could become friends with people either like themselves, with common beliefs, common interests, or they could build business connections there that were profitable for them uh, in their everyday life. But he was convinced that only a very few people were actually serious about their faith. Any of y'all had people in your family who thought just like that, they're out there by the gajillions. They believe very few people in church are really serious about their faith. They don't believe that to most Christians, their faith is actually real. Most people won't debate with you about truth. They just want to know whether your faith is authentic or not, whether it's really made a difference in your life. And so to this friend of mine, he perceived that most people who are gathered in church are doing any and everything but worshiping the living God. And that, I think, maybe has always been a situation in church because it's part of what Solomon is talking about here. Part of what he's writing here in these verses is to try to help keep that very kind of thing from actually happening 3,000 years ago, for crying out loud. Solomon tells the people, here's the first principle in authentic worship, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Now, that word guard is an important biblical word. Most of the time when the word guard is used in the Bible, it's used in a noun form. It's actually talking about like somebody that is a guard or somebody that's actually guarding something. But there are 
an occasional uh, series of times where the word guard is used as a verb to describe something that we're to do. As a verb, it means obviously to watch carefully. And it carries this idea of being vigilant or being diligent. Those of you in the military, I mean, there's a thing called, it used to be called guard duty. And when you were on watch, the worst thing that you could do was to fall asleep and, and to, to quit paying attention. In fact, that could get you in real trouble, all manner of trouble. And so in this idea of guarding your steps is this idea of being vigilant, being incredibly diligent, watching over. You use it, see it used that way many times in the Bible. Solomon himself will say in Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The psalmist will tell us to guard our minds and to guard our ways. The Bible says more than once that we're to guard our mouths. I know you find that difficult to believe, don't you? Guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your ways, guard your mouth. And here Solomon instructs us to guard our steps. It's another way of saying you ought to be careful how you walk, especially when uh, it's worship that you're walking into. In fact, we could translate this phrase, not only guard your steps, some modern translations render it, watch your feet. Watch your feet when you go into the house of God. Some more loose translations might render it this way, tread carefully. Tread carefully when you walk into the house of God. You remember when Moses encountered the obvious presence of God on Sinai there at the burning bush. That's basically what God told him to do. You're coming too casual. Tread carefully. Get those shoes off and bow down low because you are standing on holy ground. Because you're on holy ground, tread carefully. Now, the question is, how do we do this? How do we guard our steps as we approach the house of God? Let me just give you a couple of suggestions this morning. These are all things that we've talked about before, but because like most 24, uh, 21st century church audiences, we never have the same audience twice. Some of these things bear repeating. And the first is to make sure you're spiritually prepared for worship because you can't guard your steps as you go into the house of God, if you've not been properly prepared well before you get there. Worship is a, always a spiritual response to God. You can't worship in the flesh. God is spirit, Jesus said, and his followers must worship him how? In spirit and in truth. And so because worship is a spiritual response to God, it necessarily follows that worship requires a proper degree of spiritual preparation. James chapter four and verse eight is an appropriate reminder, I think, that God's voice is only as clear as we're ready to hear it. So you're probably not gonna hear God's voice if you didn't show up church ready to hear God's voice. Anxiously awaiting hearing the voice of God. Look at James 4, eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now that's cause and effect. That reminds me, if I want God to draw near to me, I have to first draw near to him. My drawing near to him facilitates his drawing near to me. And then James drills deeper. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. I think as a pastor, James needs to get a little more direct with his people, don't you? 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So you see these actions, drawing near, purify yourself, cleanse yourself. These are all things that need to happen before 9.30 on Sunday morning. Everybody with me say amen. Now we try to build time in for that to happen here, but how much better that it happens before you arrive at the house of God. And the reason that's appropriate is because the Bible says in Hebrews 12, without holiness, no one will what? See the Lord. So you need to be clean well before your encounter corporately with the living God. And that just means you got to learn to get the necessary distractions out of the way. There ain't no reason for families to be having World War III on Sunday morning. There's a lot of stuff you can get done well ahead of Sunday morning that make the Sunday morning action a whole lot more smooth. But you get the necessary distractions out of the way. It also means you deal decisively with sin in your life. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. That's just Jesus' exaggerated way of making very clear that when it comes to sin, you cannot be full of it and expect to have a life-changing encounter with God. You have to deal decisively with the sin of your life, and that's part of the way that you guard your steps when you approach the house of God. I tell you another thing it means, guarding your steps and preparing yourself for worship as a part of guarding your steps means you learn to worship God every day of your life. I'm just telling you, private worship matters. What you do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, I'm telling you, if you're living in an abiding relationship with Christ, if you're obeying Jesus' principal command, abide in me as I abide in you. If you are in the word of God, you make it a regular part of your spiritual life and you pray imperfectly though it may be, but you spend time in communion with God. We're going to take communion here in just a minute, but let me just say this ought to be a culminating type of thing that just caps off your personal communion with Jesus Christ that's been taking place for days in advance. This is how you prepare yourself for worship. You worship privately well before you worship publicly with the gathered believers. And do you think that's going to have an effect in terms of what happens when we gather together on Sunday morning? Man, it's going to be like a spiritual mushroom cloud going off because you've properly prepared yourself to meet God, which is the whole import of what Solomon's trying to communicate here. A pastor friend of mine is fond of saying, Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. Amen. That's a great statement. In fact, Sunday morning worship really is a decision that is made by you well in advance even of Saturday night. His point is that acceptable worship always starts well before Sunday. And the people who understand that are those who carefully guard their steps as they approach the house of the living God. But then guarding your steps means not only you're prepared for worship, but it means you stay focused as you worship. Stay focused as you worship. This would be a good time for those of you that are dozing off, set up straight. (laughs) Because the point is, you have to condition yourself not to zone out 
in the midst of the worship of the living God. Worship requires intentionality. And it's especially true for 21st century audiences because we don't know how to pay attention anymore. I mean, we've just been conditioned over the last many decades to go visual, not auditory. And so we have shorter and shorter and shorter attention spans. Back in the 1800s, people could sing all day and they could listen for preaching that went an hour and 20 minutes and they didn't think a thing about it. Do you know how long it would take me to just read one of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's printed messages? You probably don't want to know because you'd be here a lot longer than the 40 minutes I'm going to go this morning. But here's the thing. Back in 1859, 1869, 1879, people didn't have anything else to do on Sunday. They weren't rushing home to watch a football game or an MLS soccer match or to binge watch Netflix or whatever it is that people do. They didn't have anything else to do. It was a much slower time frame. And as a result, people had longer and longer attention spans. You'd hear... You'd hear Mr. Spurgeon preach on Sunday, and then they would print his sermon, and the first thing you do on Monday morning is reread it. And those days, unfortunately, have long gone. Today, it's a challenge. Today, in 21st century America, it's a challenge just to get people show up for worship. It's a challenge to get Christian people to show up for worship. I've said before, when I was a little boy, if there were four Sundays in a month, we were in church four Sundays a month. You know what the average persistency is for an active church member today? That's gone down about 50%. Two Sundays out of four. Two Sundays out of four. And it's never the same, it's never the same people. It's like people get on the phone and call and say, okay, I came the last two Sundays, you're on for the next two, I'm gone. So I mean, it's hard to get people to even show up today. The point is, not only to come to worship, which is like a really good thing for the people of God to do, but as you come, you stay focused in the process of worship. Don't zone out. That, that's what Solomon called. If you zone out, if you show up and then don't pay attention, Solomon called, what does he call it? What's his language here? The sacrifice of what? Sacrifice of fools. That's right. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they're doing evil. In fact, he goes even farther. That word evil is a strong word. Listening to hear the word of God, Solomon says, is better than simply going through religious religious motions. Being here but not being engaged. Because he thinks that's hypocritical religion. So do whatever you need to do to stay focused. There's lots of things you can do. Like going to bed at a decent hour on Saturday night would be a good place to start. You stay up late past midnight binge washing, watching something. I'm telling you, there's no reason not to go to sleep on Sunday morning. You're worn out. Don't slouch when the preacher's preaching. I'm looking to see who straightens up right now. <laughs> Don't slouch in that pew. Set yourself up there. Straighten up. I'll tell you another thing you can do if you don't want to zone out. You're not going to like it. In fact, I don't know. Maybe I'll not even say it. Let me just move on. No, go ahead and say it. (laughs) Sit near the front right here. I didn't hear a first amen. 
I mean, I got the front setters right up here. Now, ain't nothing wrong with sitting in the back. Not in the lead. I'm just saying, but if you have trouble staying engaged, you'll have less trouble staying engaged if you're in the spit zone of the preacher right up here. <laughs> Far less trouble. We thought about during COVID putting plexiglass all the way across the front. No, you'll stay closer engaged. Same principles in the classroom. I always sat near the front because I knew there'd be fewer distractions and the preacher would be looking at me with both eyeballs or the, the professor would be. So there are all kinds of things that you could do. Take notes as you listen. There's a reason we put that note sheet out for people. You do those kinds of things. And rare it will be when you walk out of the house of God saying, you know, I just didn't get anything out of that today. Now, you do these things that almost always be something that the Lord says to your heart that's a pretty big deal for that day and that week. Now, fail to do that, <clears throat> and you'll be in the situation like so many, if not most churchgoers today, just going through religious motions. That's like the worst thing that you can do. Because there's never, that, that subject of just going through religious motions is addressed all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament of God. Man, the prophets jumped all over that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, most of the minor prophets. Because to God, that's something that's not only foolish. Solomon calls it evil because it's hypocritical. And there are a few things that God hates more than hypocrisy in terms of religious expression. And it's a good word for us to hear. That's a very positive thing for us to hear. Because many believers, even though it's not as true today for reasons that I've just mentioned a moment ago, but so often we do tend to focus more on the Hebrews 10.25 element of worship, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. We tend to focus more on that than we do on the Ecclesiastes 5 aspects of worship. Authenticity, genuineness, approach, attitude. It's important that we assemble together, but it's equally as important, if not more important, how we assemble together when we assemble together. Does that make sense, everybody? And the great example of that from the New Testament is our friends Ananias and Sapphira. Hey, hey, hey. I, they did Hebrews 10, 25. They didn't forsake the assembling of themselves together in worship. Oh, they showed up right on time. They got in their normal and customary pew. Oh, wait, they didn't have pews in the early church. That's another subject for another day. But they were where they were supposed to be, right place, right time. God strikes them dead in the house of God. Why? They failed to guard their steps as they approached the house of the Lord. There is indeed a sacrifice of fools in the presence of the living Christ. God calls it evil, and it's unacceptable worship that God always takes very seriously. Everybody with me so far? That's a heavy word, but how important is it that we be reminded of that? Guard your steps 
as you prepare for worship. And then finally, Solomon would remind us, oh my, I'm just, I'm telling you, I'm plowing close to the corn this morning. Y'all don't want me to give you this second point. I know you don't want it. Guard your mouth as you engage in worship. Guard your steps as you prepare for worship. Guard your mouth as you engage in worship. Sometimes I've often thought if it wouldn't just be better outside from the singing and the occasional amen, if we just didn't say anything else when we came to church. If the singing and the praising and the reading of scripture and the amen when we hear a good word from the Lord wouldn't by itself just be all we needed to say when we walk into the house of the Lord. I was reading a book the other day. People want to talk about multitasking. How many of you know somebody that's really good at multitasking? Anybody? I see a few hands. You really don't. Because I I was reading a book the other day where the author was reminding me and others who were reading that book that it really is no such thing as multitasking. And he was going through all the physiology, physiology of the brain. It's actually impossible for your brain to focus on two different things uh, exclusively at the same time. Now, you've got to leave one thing to focus on another. Multitasking is a misnomer. And that's especially true when it comes to the worship of God. Because you're probably not going to be able... One thing you can't do is run your mouth and open your ears at the same time. And so... It's highly unlikely, if not altogether impossible, for you to hear a word from the Lord if we're constantly speaking at the same time. You just can't do that when it comes to worship. And for that reason, Solomon says that we need to guard our mouth in worship as well as guarding our steps to worship. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty, to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. That sets us in our proper place in the proper relationship. He is sovereign, he is Lord, we're not. And Solomon's conclusion, say it out loud together with me. Therefore, let your words be few. Now I said a couple Sundays ago when Solomon kind of gave a little bit of a foreshadowing about this, that the more you and I talk, the more likely we are to sin. Nothing is a reflector of your heart more than your mouth. You basically uh, give a picture of the condition of your heart every time you open your mouth to other sentence. The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. And so every time I open my mouth to speak, I'm giving some kind of a reflection of my heart, your heart's on display as you use words. And this is important because words matter, especially when there are words that are spoken in the house of God. And that's why Solomon says that when it comes to worship, we're to let our words be what? Let your words be few. Because the fewer things you say, the less likely you are to commit sin. And the Bible teaches that constantly. A wise man or a wise woman lives, the Bible says, circumspectly. 
especially when it comes to matters of speech. So when it comes to the public worship of God, here's kind of the bottom line. If you don't believe the words of the song or the words of the song are not a, an appropriate reflection of your own spiritual life, you're better off not singing them. Just don't sing them. If, if the words you pray, to use Jesus' term, is nothing more than meaningless babble, if you're just learning, uh, trying to fill airspace with the words of your prayer, then you're better off not praying. If the compliments you give aren't coming from a heart that's genuine, the Bible calls that flattery, and it's a sin before a holy God. The other end of that spectrum is if the complaints you lodge are not biblical and they're not constructive, then those complaints ought not be uttered at all. In fact, <clears throat> I'll go even a step further than that. I don't think that a complaint ever ought to be lodged in the house of God on Sunday at all. You say, never, unless the building's on fire and we don't care. Then it would be a good time to complain. No, we don't complain on the Lord's day. That's not what the Lord's day is for. That's what God made Mondays for. Somebody say amen. And we'll take your phone call on Monday. <clears throat> Love to sit down and visit with you. The Lord's Day, when God's people gather together. Y'all don't want me to say this this morning. You just don't. When we gather together for worship, words ought to be encouraging. They ought to be worshipful. They ought to, they ought to be instructive. They ought to be uplifting. And so we don't, we don't use this time together as a convenient. Well, I, while I've got you here, no, don't do it. Don't go there. Call me Monday or Tuesday. But today's a day for us to bask in the presence and the glory of God that we might be changed, that we might be kingdom people who live to make a difference. So you get all of that at no extra charge this morning. And Solomon gives a word here about the most extreme kind of speech, which is a vow to God. Did y'all notice that? You don't hear much about vows from pulpits much anymore, but we kind of still do them. We, we probably won't call them vows, but I think God's people are still in the business of trying to cut deals with God. And you know, the Bible does not say that we should never make a vow to God, but it does say that we're to be very careful about making vows to God because vows to God can be an awful lot like New Year's resolutions. They can be some of the biggest lies that you'll ever tell in your life. And one thing you don't want to do is lie to God. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did and God struck them dead because of it. Are you saying God's going to strike me dead if I break a vow? I didn't say that. But I think I am on safe ground to saying, if you, if you make a vow to God and you don't keep it and you're not diligent and sincere about it, God will judge it in some way. I don't know how he's going to do it, but that's playing fast and loose in terms of your relationship with God. And so you need to be very careful. You make a promise to God, make sure that you keep your promises to God. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. 
It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and, and not pay. Now, all of us are very, uh, probably uh, very aware of the famous foxhole stories. People have shared those through the years. Lord, you do this and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And again, most of that is conditional, right? We're in an extreme moment and we feel we want to get out of it and we feel like God is sovereign. This is one of the reasons why you've heard the statement, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. There are times in everybody's life where circumstances get so severe, the only thing they know to do is just cry out to God, even if it's a God they've never admitted actually exists. Things get bad enough, that's typically what happens. And for those not seasoned in the word of God, this is where the deal making usually starts to take place. And the Bible would, be, would caution us, you need to be very careful about doing that. If you do make a vow to God, it ought to be the most serious thing that you've ever done in your life. And you need to be very serious about doing whatever it takes to keep it. Because if you forget about it, you know, Solomon uh, gives us the example here of this straw man that comes to confront the person who made the vows to why he didn't keep the vow. And Solomon is quick to say, don't tell that person, oh, you just forgot about it. Don't tell that person it really wasn't that big of a deal. Don't tell that person I really didn't mean it because God knows exactly what you mean. He knows what you mean when you say it. And even though you may claim to forget it, the Bible says God never will. One of the most popular books five or six years ago was the book Unbroken. It's about Louis Zamperini, World War II hero. He was shot down in his B-24 Liberator uh, on a bombing mission. He was captured, put in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. The movie came out just a little bit ago. Very wonderful movie. And Louis Zamperini, in his book, recounts uh, the time, because he was brutally beaten, that he made a vow to God in that prison camp. You ought to read the book or watch the movie. It's really fantastically great. He wasn't a man of faith at the time, but he prayed, quote, God, if I survive this ordeal and get back to America alive, I'll seek you and serve you. Those were his words. And God did. <clears throat> God saved his life. And he brought him back to America. And while he started to get back to what he described as a more normal life, he didn't pay that vow much attention at first. He was like most people that make them. He got back, things got much better. And that vow that he made to God was relegated to the back portion of his mind. But then somebody invited him in 1949. He was living in Los Angeles. And a young evangelist strung up a big tent there. His name was Billy Graham. Probably the most famous revival that Billy Graham ever did was the 1949 Los Angeles revival that continued literally for weeks and weeks and weeks. Thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And one evening, Louis Zamperini was in the audience and he heard Billy Graham preaching, you must be born again. And that night he was. He said as he listened to Dr. Graham preach, he was reminded as Dr. Graham 
reminded him of some of the great promises of God to him in Christ, of a promise he had made to God, but had conveniently forgotten. And when the invitation was offered, he got up and he walked that aisle and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And until the day he died, Louis Zamperini fulfilled that vow. He sought after God and he served God for the rest of his life. This is Solomon's word about worship. It's a good and timely word. Don't be a fool. Approach God seriously and carefully. Guard your steps. Prepare in advance. Focus on truth. And let your words be few. The last thing he says is probably the most important thing, and it's a good place to put the period today. Verse number seven. For when dreams increase and words grow many. In other words, when we make worship about us rather than about him, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And God give us the wisdom to live our lives and to conduct our worship in the constant fear and respect of a holy, righteous Lord. This is God's word. And let all who agree say amen this morning.